Welcome to Curbside Consult Statistical Review, where we explore the different aspects of trial design, methodology, and statistical analysis in studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Angela Castellanos, Editorial Fellow at the NEJM. We've got our go-to statistical expert with us today, Dr. Dave Harrington. He's Professor Emeritus of Biostatistics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thanks for joining us today, Dave. Great to be back, Angie. Awesome. In our last episode of Curbside Consults, we discussed the study, Initial Opioid Prescriptions Among U.S. Commercially Insured Patients, published in March of 2019 in NEJM. The study used a large private insurance database to assess incidents of initial opioid prescriptions in each month between July 2012 and December 2017. If you didn't have a chance to listen to this podcast, no worries. You can always go back and listen however you get your podcasts. In the meantime, we will be summarizing the relevant study while we review our statistical topic. Today, for our statistical review, we're going to talk about observational studies from databases, the strengths, the limitations of these studies, and what to look out for when you are critically appraising this work. Now, Dave, in the New England Journal, we typically publish randomized control trials. The randomization helps us minimize bias in the study, and maybe we can even make a conclusion based on these results. Observational studies, however, they have their own strengths and plates in the medical literature. So let's start by talking about why a researcher would want to do or design an observational study and what questions they could ask, and what the advantages of the observational study can be. So observational studies can be the right kind of study for many reasons. First and foremost, the main advantage is to be able to ask a question that could not be studied in a controlled trial, such as studies assessing outcomes based on exposures where randomization would be unethical, for instance, in a study looking at toxic exposures and the possibility of birth defects. A similar example, published in the June 2017 issue of the journal, called Air Pollution and Mortality in the Medicare Population, using mortality information from Medicare data. This study demonstrated a trend of higher mortality in areas with increased exposures to fine particulate matter and ozone. Here we have a study with an exposure that would be unethical in a controlled trial and done in a large study population of approximately 60 million people. Not all observational studies are based on large databases. Sometimes an observational study is preferred over a controlled trial because the exposure of interest cannot be assigned randomly. In those situations, the information is compelling enough to tolerate bias that may be present in an observational study. NEGM published a study earlier in May of 2019, Tau Positron Emission Tomography in Former National Football League Players. Here, the deposition of tau and amyloid beta in symptomatic former professional football players were compared to asymptomatic men with no history of traumatic brain injury. And finally, observational studies are the ideal useful vehicles for assessing national and societal trends in patterns of care in the U.S. population. The opioid prescription study you discussed in your last podcast is an example of this kind of observational study. There's just no other way of looking at this trend on such a large scale over time. Okay. So observational studies using data sets can help us ask questions we otherwise can't ask using controlled trials for the reasons you just outlined here. Correct. My biggest concern, and I feel what was drilled into me going to journal clubs and doing other critical appraisal of research, is that when I look at observational studies, there are a lot of sources of bias. The potential sources of bias in an observational study can be substantial. For that reason, the journal usually publishes randomized control trials. A prospective randomized control trial eliminates bias because the randomization of participants into one of two or more intervention arms minimizes selection bias on the part of the researcher. 
It balances both measured and unmeasured confounders. In a randomized control trial, prospective planning of what data to collect and how to collect it ensures that essential baseline and outcome data are measured and recorded to fit the research questions. In retrospective observational studies, the ability to minimize bias is greatly reduced. Okay, so can you walk us through some of these sources of bias? So let's start with the issues of external validity and the selection and bias that may be inherent in the use of a database. In terms of the study population, the database usually does not have data from a randomly selected subset of the target population, that is, a representative subset of interest. Data from the observational studies were collected for reasons other than the research question. In the case of the opioid study, data on opioid prescriptions were collected for administrative and billing purposes. The study population is not a random sample from all prescriptions for these drugs written, since individuals in the study have private, usually employer-based healthcare insurance. Individuals who are uninsured or unemployed will not be part of the study population. This can disproportionately exclude young people, homeless people, or people working in jobs that do not provide health care insurance. Right. So our study population might have a selection bias. That's one important limitation. And in the case of the prescription data that we're actually looking at, what are other sources of bias that we should look out for? The data are only as useful as the way they were collected and recorded. For the insurance data, we are relying on charges from a pharmacy for the prescriptions that have been filled. A prescription may not show up in the database until it is filled, and billed by the pharmacist to the insurance company. It is impossible to know how many prescriptions weren't filled or how many patients might have paid for their prescription out of pocket. Okay. And so these limitations in the data collected could also come from an ascertainment bias, or that's an error in our measurement of what we're interested in looking at. So our measure in this case is of prescription records, and the database may not reflect the number of prescriptions that were accurately written. That's right. The main limitation with observational studies, especially when we're looking at patient-level outcomes, for example, in case control studies like the tau and amyloid beta levels in former football players versus asymptomatic men, are confounding variables. Confounding variables are variables which are not balanced between groups and may, in fact, be mistakenly causing the association. Because the participants in a study like the football study are not randomized, there are going to be unanticipated confounding variables affecting the results. Randomization allows us to ensure that the two arms of a trial are well-matched, and we can attribute the differences in the outcomes to the interventions being compared. In an observational study, that's not possible. In the case of the football study, which was essentially a case control study from a database, the information, however, was compelling enough that asking the question was worthwhile. We still have to consider the potential confounding factors in this study. For example, the average asymptomatic male is probably very different in many ways from a symptomatic former football player, and we may not be capturing all these differences in the study. Okay. So in that case, an observational study is useful, but based on, for example, the football player study that we're talking about, can we make any conclusions from these studies? So any conclusions made from observational studies must be done in the context of the strengths and limitations of the study. Let's first talk about the opioid prescription study. For this study, one strength is that it was looking at trends in opioid prescription over time nationally. The only way to investigate this question is with an observational study with a large database. In, in terms of limitations, we know that likely the source of bias is the selection of the population. Is this the population that we really want to look at to assess this question of opioid prescriptions? All of these patients are insured through Blue Cross Blue Shield, leaving out a non-random portion of the population. Also, we identified a possible ascertainment bias 
because not all prescriptions may have been recorded correctly. The trends identified in this study describe this specific population over time, though, and I think that we can be reasonably confident that this study matches up well with what happens in national trends. The only way it could provide a substantial misleading result if prescriptions that were covered by Blue Cross Blue Shield were very different than prescriptions being used in the general population. Okay, so in the case of this initial opioid prescriptions among U.S. commercially insured patients, as Dr. Hadlin said in our podcast, while we see evidence of the decline in incidence of opioid prescriptions, we still see some high-risk prescribers. However, as Dr. Hadlin noted, and basically as you've said, we don't know the circumstances of these prescriptions. Um, We don't know the geographic distribution. We cannot make any remarks on what caused this decline. We just know that the trend exists and that it happened. So what about studies like the football players with the tau and amyloid beta that we discussed earlier? What conclusions can we draw from these kinds of studies? Because of all the bias present in observational studies, as we've discussed, we cannot be sure that the increase in tau deposits was caused by head injuries to these football players. Too many confounding variables exist. So despite these limitations, observational studies can be a great starting point for generating testable hypotheses. For example, in the 1990s, Observational studies demonstrated a potential protective link between hormone replacement therapy and cardiovascular disease in women. Later, a large randomized trial called the Women's Health Initiative, done in the early 2000s, showed that this link was not the case. Okay. So what approach would you recommend when critically appraising observational studies derived from data sets? Most importantly, look at the question being studied. Is it looking at trends on a societal level? Is it evaluating exposures that would not be possible to assign in a control trial? Is it asking a question or giving us information that's so important and compelling that we can tolerate some bias when looking at the results? Also, look closely at the sources of bias. There are many statistical methods for mitigating bias in observational studies, such as propensity score, matching, and modeling. So ask yourself what methods have the study team used to try to mitigate the source of bias. And remember, Associations do not mean causation. It's important to keep in mind that the size of an observational study is not always its greatest strength. A large study with significant potential bias can be less reliable than a smaller study where bias has been controlled. A large bias study can be misleading and, in fact, potentially dangerous. There you go. Thank you so much, Dave, for going through observational studies with us. And thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks to Dr. Amanda Fernandez and Dr. Angela Chen, my co-editorial fellows at NEJM this year, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hammondvik. We want your feedback. Please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Leave us a message or review wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to reach out to us via NEJM Resident 360 website or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook via the NEJM.org pages. I'm Dr. Angela Castellanos, Editorial Fellow at NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.